This podcast is intended solely for educational purposes and presents information of a general nature. It is not intended to guide or determine any specific individual situation and persons should consult qualified professionals before taking specific action. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and not those of Milliman. Welcome to Critical Point, brought to you by Milliman. I'm Leslie Pink, and I'll be your host today. In this episode of Critical Point, we're going to be talking about mental health and the COVID-19 pandemic. Specifically, we'll discuss the range of mental health and substance use issues sparked or made worse by the pandemic, how different populations are being affected, and the rising demand for mental health services. Joining us today is Stoddard Davenport, a healthcare management consultant with Milliman who has written extensively on a range of behavioral health issues, including mental health parity, the opioid epidemic, and population health strategies. Thanks for chatting with me today, Stoddard. Thanks for having me, Leslie. Glad to be here. Let's talk a bit about a paper that Milliman released in January to lay the groundwork. In that paper, There was a note that the National Institute of Mental Illness estimated that one in five adults in the U.S. experiences mental illness in a given year. What are the most common mental illnesses in this country? Sure, yeah. So to to kind of set the background a little bit for mental health in the United States before the pandemic, um, I just want to clarify that mental health takes many forms, right? So the most common form would be the symptoms that many of us experience from time to time that don't necessarily constitute a disorder, uh, yet still impact our well-being and happiness. Things like stress, anxiety, sadness, fear, etc. Um, so those are things that everybody experiences that don't always rise to the level of a disorder. Um, but when we're talking about mental illness, uh, depression and anxiety disorders are generally the two most commonly diagnosed illnesses in the United States. And you know, while one in five adults in the United States experience mental illness in a given year, the impact is actually a lot bigger when you consider the overall impact on households. So research we've completed shows that you know, for a typical family of four, for example, over 43% of households had at least one family member that was in treatment for a behavioral health condition within a given year. And the risk for either the kids or the parents in a household is about doubled when the other has a mental health condition. So that just kind of sets the stage for, you know, how how prevalent behavioral health conditions are in the United States before the pandemic and kind of what, you know, quote unquote normal might look like prior to the pandemic. I see. And now let's talk about the pandemic. Um, As the COVID-19 pandemic started back in March, we started to see extreme measures being put in place, people having to isolate at home, social events canceled, people working from home, schools closed. So besides the actual pandemic that people were dealing with, they were also dealing with sense of isolation, a lack of normalcy in their daily life. What effect did this have on the nation's collective mental health? Yeah, the the mental health impacts of COVID-19 have, have really been substantial. 
um, you know, going back to kind of that distinction between, you know, mental health symptoms versus mental health disorders, you know, the emergence of this new disease has led many to fear for their own health, for the health of their loved ones, um, to worry about the future and what that may hold. Um, social distancing requirements and other public health actions have created feelings of isolation and for many frustration as well. The economic consequences have been substantial and have contributed to feelings of stress or anxiety or fear. And individuals have a, a wide range of reactions to these circumstances. For some, uh, these challenges might just be temporary and things may sort of return to normal once we kind of get through the other side of this and, and life kind of normalizes a bit again. Others may experience chronic challenges uh, that are going to drive their their mental health over the longer term. Um, so there's it's kind of this twofold impact of you know in the moment temporary stress as well as contribution to you know increasing chronic challenges that that I think we're going to be grappling with for some time to come. And as we talk about these numbers, I saw that the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention published some survey results in August, and that noted that almost 41% of U.S. adults reported struggling with their mental health or substance use, both related to the pandemic and to some of the measures put in place to contain it. Um, can you talk about these results? Yeah, that that CDC survey um, is one of the best insights we have so far into both kind of the extent of the mental health impacts that have happened after the pandemic began, as well as kind of how the impacts vary between different populations. And this was a survey, again, completed in June. So we were we were a few months into a lot of the, the public health measures in the United States, but, um, you know, not at our our current peak obviously so so just to kind of frame that where this falls um, so you know as you noted according to that survey over 40 percent of adults reported struggling with mental health or substance use um, 31 percent were reporting symptoms of anxiety or depression uh, 26 percent reported symptoms of trauma or stressor related disorders uh, related to COVID-19 13 percent reported having started or increasing substance use to cope with the pandemic and 11% reported having seriously considered suicide in the past 30 days. And just to sort of frame how some of those vary to what we saw before the pandemic, um, you know, we don't have kind of that exact same survey instrument completed uh, prior to the pandemic for sort of a perfect baseline, but earlier survey instruments show that in 2019, 24.5% of adults had any mental illness or substance use disorder. 11% um, had symptoms of anxiety or depression, so that's about a, a third of what we're seeing now. And 4.8% had serious thoughts about suicide in the prior year. Um, you know, so compare that 4.8% over an entire year to you know, 11% just in the prior 30 days as measured in June. Um, that's significant. That's a huge, that seems to me like a huge, a huge jump, especially for something as serious as suicide ideation. Right. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think, you know, we think about how this is going to play out over the longer term, um, you know, 
So, as I mentioned before, for some, it's just sort of temporary stressors are going to get through that, that might look different for those that have sort of acute crises during the pandemic. Um, things like drug overdoses or suicide attempts or things like that. Um, that those, I think, are, are things that, you know, really ought to be <laughs> sort of triaged uh, more substantially than than some of these other things that we may have more time to, to help folks get through. And when you were talking about these statistics, how are different populations being affected? For example, we've seen racial disparities in the prevalence of COVID-19. Are we seeing similar disparities in mental health related to COVID? Are there certain groups that are getting hit harder or that are faring worse than others? Yeah, there, there's quite a bit of variance in in the mental health impacts, at least from what we see coming out of the, the CDC survey that we've been talking about. So um, the prevalence of COVID-19 related behavioral health symptoms has been about twice as high for individuals that had pre-existing behavioral health diagnoses. So, you know, if you came into the pandemic with already in treatment for a behavioral health condition, um, this is really you know, for a lot of folks, doubled the the symptoms that they're experiencing. Um, there's been studies that have found that COVID-19 patients are at greater risk for a psychiatric diagnosis post-hospitalization, and that they're also at greater risk, and folks with psychiatric diagnoses are also at greater risk of um, contracting and having serious outcomes from COVID-19. There's also reason to believe that COVID-19 can directly exacerbate some psychiatric or neurological symptoms too. So that, that's concerning. Um, there's a lot of concern for younger people uh, in this in terms of mental health impacts. So 75% of those aged 18 to 24 reported at least one adverse mental or behavioral health symptom. That's about five times the rate for those aged 65 or older, um, 25% of those aged 18 to 24 reported starting or increasing substance use to cope. And again, that compares to 3% for those aged 65 or older. Um, there's pretty big differences by employment status too. Essential workers are 40% more likely to report symptoms of anxiety or depression compared to non-essential workers. And they're more than twice as likely as non-essential workers to have started or increased substance use to cope. Um, and as you alluded to, there are also substantial differences by race and ethnicity. Um, and to kind of set the backdrop for that, according to data from the CDC, both infection rates and mortality rates are higher for Black individuals, as well as Indigenous and Latinx people as well, compared to white individuals. And there's a lot that drives this, including, you know, different occupational exposures, um, some of the folks in these communities work in higher risk jobs where they might be more likely to have exposures there. Differences in socioeconomic status, access to healthcare, et cetera. All of this plays out not just in terms of COVID-19 and contracting it and having severe outcomes from it, but also in terms of mental health impacts as well. And kind of coming back to that CDC survey, they found more adverse mental or behavioral health symptoms for, for those same populations that are also at higher risk of of COVID-19 and, you know, for black individuals and mental health impacts have also overlapped with significant events like, you know, racial justice protests in the wake of the deaths of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and more. And, and those have all sort of added to the stress that they are experiencing this year um, in, in a really significant way. 
you mentioned that young adults um, have had a, a significant amount of, of mental health problems, um, as well as essential workers and Black and Latinx. Um, are there other groups that have been affected to the same degree, or are these groups the ones that have been hit the hardest? Yeah, I, I think that's where where things have, have looked the worst so far. So uh, if you drill down into what the CDC found for suicidal ideation, um, which, you know, I think could arguably kind of be the the most, you know, extreme adverse symptom of, of mental health that, that they measured there, um, the, the variation that really demonstrates the depth of distress experienced and the variation between different populations. So when you look at that measure, um, among those aged 18 to 24, more than 25% reported having seriously considered suicide in the past 30 days. Um, that's a rate 13 times higher than experienced by those aged 65 or older, just to sort of put some context to how big of a, of a divide there is there. Um, Essential workers were nearly three times as likely as non-essential workers to have seriously considered suicide. Unpaid adult caregivers were more than eight times as likely as others. And black respondents were more than twice as likely to have considered suicide compared to white respondents. Um, Hispanic respondents were more likely than, than either. So um, interestingly, the unemployed actually fared better on some mental health measures than either essential or non-essential workers, hmm. um, keeping in mind that this survey was completed at a time when unenhanced—sorry, uh, when the enhanced unemployment benefits were were still in effect back in in late June. So um, that might play a role in in somewhat mitigating the the mental health impacts for some of the folks that were the most vulnerable to economic disruptions early on. Right. There's a, a complex stew of things that, that go into this. And as we're seeing greater problems with mental health in the U.S., I would also assume that there would be increasing demand for mental health services. Um, how is this being addressed or is it? And how is the U.S. healthcare system, which is dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic, bracing for the increase in mental health demand. Yeah, so to kind of, you know, put some flavor to what's been going on with the demand for mental health services, you know, we, a lot of the, the familiar tools that we use to monitor um, use and costs for healthcare services in the United States have a bit of a lag to them, right? So it's hard to see sort of immediately emerging data on, on how folks are using behavioral health services. That said, it's been long enough now that we are starting to see, you know, here and there additional reports coming out about, you know, what's happened to different types of services. And we're seeing some evidence that, you know, although there was sort of a huge drop in, care, uh, foregone care, deferred care, things like that that happened early on in the pandemic. Um, in some reports, behavioral health services dropped um, less than other types of care. So that could be because, uh, you know, a function of behavioral health services may be happening in a little bit more of a one-on-one -on -one setting that folks felt safer continuing, or it could be that the demand was significant enough that it, it didn't sort of have as far to fall. Um, 
or what you know other factors could contribute to that but we're also seeing you know in some of the some of the reports that are coming out that behavioral health care utilization is actually also rebounding faster than other types of care in some cases we're seeing it exceed pre-pandemic levels of use um but i i think in my view um the supply, our behavioral health workforce supply may ultimately start to bottleneck our ability to respond, um, at least using specialty behavioral health care. So um, people are, are turning to other resources, community resources, support from their peers. There's been a lot of demand for, you know, there have been a lot of innovative startups in the behavioral health space that have been around for maybe a while, but are all of a sudden seeing substantially more interest in their platforms as folks try to figure out how to fill the gaps. And telehealth has been really big too. Uh, both before and during the pandemic, behavioral health conditions have been um, really one of the leading drivers of uh, use of telemedicine services. Um, we have as many as 120 million Americans right now that live in areas with mental health professional shortage areas. And so, you know, interest in using telehealth to eliminate the need for patients and clinicians to be in the same physical space is probably going to stick around a lot longer than, than the pandemic. Um, so that, that could be something that that's helpful over the longer term. And this, there have been certain provisions put in place that allow for behavioral health to be accessed via telehealth. Those have got, those got, went into effect pretty soon after the pandemic started, right? Right. I, I think we've seen a lot of the payers offer additional flexibility, um, services that maybe couldn't have been paid for via telehealth before are now being paid for, um, things like that. It, it kind of remains to be seen which of those changes end up being permanent. Um, but, but for now, um, yeah, there's there's definitely some additional flexibilities there for telemedicine that were not there um, prior to the pandemic. And we've talked a lot about um, behavioral health, mental health. Could we also talk about substance use disorder and how those struggling with that issue have been affected? Yeah, I mean, the, so the opioid epidemic has been around for a long time. It's one of the it would, I would say, was the top public health concern prior to the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, and it's still with us, you know, even if it's not in the spotlight as much now. Um, we had kind of a, a brief moment there where we were seeing data come in from late 2017 into 2018 that was suggesting maybe we were turning a corner. There was a bit of a plateau in, in drug overdose deaths there for a bit. Um, however, as more data emerges, it's kind of going the wrong direction again. So we're seeing drug overdeaths back on the upswing. Um, these these deaths are not tracked in real time like we have for COVID-19. So there there's a lag in, in seeing kind of the actual experience play out there. But anecdotal media reports, things like that are suggesting that overdose deaths are on the rise. Um, we know that um, you know, based on what we know about risk factors for opioid use disorder, COVID-19 is is kind of a perfect storm uh, in terms of increasing um, fear and anxiety and and isolation and and things like that, economic uncertainty. Those those things all contribute to really kind of setting things up to go the wrong direction here. Um, different reports are seeing have shown you know 
doubling in the prevalence of fentanyl in random samples of urine tests that were ordered um, in the first four months after uh, March 13th, when a lot of the lockdowns went into effect compared to the four months prior in, in one health system. Um, we, we've seen kind of a 2x increase in opioid-involved emergency department visits in March to June of this year compared to the same time period a year before. Uh, and of course, you know, as we noted from the CDC uh, survey that we've talked about a, a good bit, um, 13% of adults have reported starting or increasing substance use to cope with COVID-19 straight stresses as of late June. Um, one of the one of the glimmers of hope amidst all that, however, is that uh, we've, we're seeing some additional flexibilities that have come into play for medication-assisted treatment. Um, so this, this consists of the use of medications, counseling, and other therapies for the treatment of substance use disorders. And in the past, uh, medications such as buprenorphine could only be administered in an office-based setting by certain healthcare professionals that have been through a waiver process to get authority to uh, do the prescribing and delivery there. Uh, but in March 2020, the Drug Enforcement Administration gave some additional flexibility for that kind of care to be initiated through telehealth visits instead. And, and again, coming back to the issue of how many people live in areas without the right care, um, you know, we've got something like half the United States population that lives in counties that do not have uh, a local uh, medication-assisted treatment provider. And so there's, there's a lot of interest in keeping those flexibilities around beyond the pandemic. So it could be a good thing if we have some additional flexibility and, and access there over the longer term. Um, but I, I do want to point out that, you know, this, in terms of substance use disorders, it's really not just about opioids. Drug overdose deaths involving other substances have also been on the rise for several years. And a lot of the risk factors for these disorders are shared across, you know, all sorts of different substances. So, um, there's a lot to keep an eye on here, and um, you know, opioids are in the spotlight, but are certainly not the only substance that we're worried about and keeping our eye on. Well, as this pandemic goes on and on, um, how could this possibly affect the mental health of Americans down the line? We've been through this for a few months. We've seen spikes in anxiety and depression and in thoughts of suicide, as it goes on, what could some of the lingering effects be on, on the U.S. population? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, you know, I wish I had a crystal ball, but what, <laughs> what we do know is um, economic conditions have been found to have kind of a really strong, um, persistent relationship uh, to some behavioral health outcomes. And, um, you know, those who have experienced extended financial distress or career disruptions due to the, due to the pandemic uh, may be at higher risk for long-term behavioral health challenges. Um, there are some studies that have tied the recession of 2007 through 2009 to persistent increases in a range of behavioral health conditions and um, alcohol and drug use disorders and things like that. So, uh, over the longer term, I think th those economic circumstances may be a, a pretty big driver of, of behavioral health outcomes. There's also some concern about the long-term impacts on the social or emotional development um, and mental health outcomes for youth who've had um, 
socializing and education opportunities disrupted by the pandemic and um you know this is kind of a, a whole new world right where you know during the the recession from 2007 to 2009 you could still go to school right so um we i don't know that we have a recent historical comparator to really understand what that could look like or play out like but but it's it's something that a, a lot of folks are keeping an eye on and are going to be concerned about going forward as well that leads me to my next next question, which what does the road ahead look like on the mental health front? What can individuals, communities, doctors do to mitigate these problems? Yeah, yeah. So, I, I mean, we've our behavioral health system has been struggling to um, perform perhaps as well as we might like for a, a long time leading into the pandemic. And we're going to carry some of the challenges we faced before with us into how we respond now. Um, and, you know, as I mentioned before, capacity for specialty behavioral health care is concerning in some parts of the country or for some types of professionals. Um, telehealth is one of the ways that we're reducing some of the access barriers, both um, by sort of eliminating the need for face-to-face uh, -face care that could be a little bit higher risk in terms of COVID-19 transmission, but also helpful for el eliminating physical distance barriers, right? So, you know, when providers are, do not live where patients do, um, telehealth is a great way to connect the dots. Um, we're seeing health plans uh, put more effort into building their behavioral health professional networks. Um, one thing we're keeping an eye on there is, is how folks are making an effort to stay compliant with mental health parity regulations um, by making sure that they offer flexibility during the pandemic and after on the, the behavioral health side that matches a lot of the additional flexibilities that have been offered on the physical health side. Um, keeping an eye on that both now and after the pandemic, I think is gonna be helpful we're seeing employers engaging with a lot of different strategies and offerings that that might supplement the benefits they provide uh, provided before um, you, you're seeing things like apps for employees and their families to use that help with different activities or meditations you can do on your own um, some of those things may be helpful for a lot of folks especially for folks that are, are experiencing mental health symptoms but perhaps not necessarily full-blown, you know, diagnosable disorders. Um, and I think just kind of for the community at large, there, there's simple things all of us can be doing to help, like checking in on your friends and loved ones, um, keeping good social contact with the people in our circles, even if in a physically distanced fashion, right? So uh, particularly for those that may be alone or at higher risk, I think it's it's kind of a going to be a all hands on deck kind of situation to keep an eye on on folks as we move forward from this. Great. Thank you for joining us, Stoddard. You've been listening to Critical Point presented by Milliman. To listen to other episodes of our podcast, please visit us at milliman.com or find us on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher. Until next time.